Hey there, welcome back to the Cannabis Update Podcast. The premise is to give leaders and organizations in the legal cannabis space an opportunity to tell their stories and share information. Before we begin today's podcast, I'm going to start off with a small ask of you. If you like what I do, leave me a review on your favorite streaming app or site. And if you want to sponsor this podcast, reach out to me, michael at distinctmedia.ca, and I will send you a media kit. All right, today's talk is with none other than Travis Lane. Now, some of you may know him as Bearded Greenly on Twitter. He's involved in the cannabis space in many ways. Travis is also a longtime craft grower who's now beginning to enter into the legal space to pursue his dream of operating a small-scale but world-class craft grow facility. I reached out to Travis to talk a little bit about the world of legacy versus legal to get his thoughts on an article that came out lately, and we just kind of let our chat go from there. This one's a long one for me. It's about an hour, but honestly, we could have done more, so perhaps on another day. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the podcast, Travis. Thank you for having me. It is a pleasure. Um, now, I reached out to you last week to find out if I could get your comments on something, and we'll get to that a little bit later. But uh, for those who don't know you, can you tell us a little bit about who you are? Yeah, sure. So, I, I mean, I grew up in BC in sort of this era of non-enforcement. My parents were hippies. There was cannabis around, so I grew up without stigma. So I've been growing cannabis for a long time. Um, I, in fact, I grew my first plant or tried to grow my first plants when I was a teenager in my closet. I had no idea what I was doing and promptly killed them, you know. Um, and from there, I've improved my skills to the point where I became uh, a cannabis only professional about six or seven years ago. Um, for years and years, I grew for myself on a relatively small scale, but also had regular jobs yeah. um, because what we did was illegal. So we had to have sort of, you know, something else to show that we had revenue. Um, but yeah, so now uh, over the past several years, I've been moving towards the legal space. Um, I'm an applicant on a couple of uh, microcultivators on the South Island uh, that we're waiting for. Uh, we're just finishing our building right now. So January, we're going to be done building. So our evidence package and our application should be in by the end of January. Oh wow! And I'm also the executive director of a newer uh, media company called Inside the Jar, uh, where we focus pretty heavily on cannabis-related news but we also write about other things because you know people that smoke weed don't necessarily just want to read about cannabis all day so okay. we focus on other things that we feel fit into the culture um in the past i have run uh, a chain of dispensaries um i've been a partner in an extraction company so i've done my best to try and have a well-rounded industry knowledge yeah and now i'm stepping into the legal space um, and look forward to being able to build a lifelong career out of something that, you know, was never that certain in the black market or in the illicit market. Right. Um, and so uh, for me, it's a, it's a time of opportunity. It's a time of optimism, but it's also that there's a lot of uh, residual questions and a lot of things that have been bungled a little bit. Yeah. And so it's sort of a, there's, there's no black and white. There's a lot of gray going on right now. Okay. I think the first time I may have uh, learned more about you is through uh, an interview I did with Jamie Shaw, because you were working with mm -hmm. her, I, I don't know if you still do, uh, at Groundwork Consulting. That's one of your yeah. many streams. Yeah. So Jamie and I are good friends. We've, uh, we've known each other for some time now, and we were doing consulting under Groundwork with Cortland as well, mm -hmm. um, where we were helping people sort of we were helping with licensing. We were helping with government relations. I also have a consultancy that helps build grows okay. um, with my wife, who's a PhD student in plant biology at the Jeez. University of Victoria. All right. Um, and so we help design, do procedures, uh, you know, vet hires and stuff like that for growers as well. So from the consulting perspective, I've involved myself in in a lot of, of things. But part of the reason I got into consulting 
yeah. was because I shut down my illicit operations a couple of years back mm-hmm. and I needed to maintain revenue while I waited for licensing. And we didn't know how long that licensing was going to take. I mean, you can see now that even with October 18th being over a year away and my application just getting in in January, that this has been quite a long and arduous process. Um, so the consulting would sort of serve as an interim measure for me in a lot of ways. Yeah. I still do it and I still have valued clients and it's been great to meet a lot of people. But my long-term goal is to sort of offer for myself more than anything. Yeah, no, that's fair. Um, so I guess at the root of things, uh, it was really growing that identified you, and I guess you've sort of expanded into other things. Um, this leads me into a million potential questions for you, you know, as far as the legacy and the legal market goes, uh, as somebody who's an experienced grower. First of all, do you ever or have you ever bought um, you know, retail cannabis from a legal store? Oh, yeah. Um, I, on October 18th of 2018, I bought about a thousand bucks worth of cannabis as soon as the BC online store came on. Unfortunately, the quality of that time was so low that I probably threw about $750 of cannabis away. Um, there's been significant improvements since then. Uh, a lot of these, a lot of the time when we're critical of these white market producers, uh, these legal licensed producers that mm-hmm. are quite large, we have to understand that, you know, each iteration they should be getting better, especially these big money corps. They have the money to try and solve the problem, or they did before the, the current stock debacle. Yeah. Um, and, and so I, I tend to, well, I'm highly critical of bad product. I also tend to give the companies a bit of the benefit of the doubt that they're going to get better over time. Um, when we start looking at what's available now, things from Quest or Broken Coast or Whistler that are actually quite good where the problem comes down to price point. Oh, yeah. Where it's the reason, you know, like this, the stats can release today that said that BC is lagging behind every other province, basically. And part of that is our really robust and, and sophisticated uh, illicit marketplace. And so for people to compete with that illicit marketplace, it's not good enough to just produce high-quality product, which is finally starting to land on our shelves now. Yeah. It also has to be at a competitive price point, and it has to be available. And so what we've seen with that competitive price point is that it doesn't exist for the better products. Yeah, you know, I went to my favorite shop here near Calgary uh, yesterday, and uh, I very specifically, I mean, I've been trying to buy different things from different growers because I want to just see what's out there. And I mean, there's so much I can't keep up. But I went and I said, okay, um, I just want to buy like what's considered the best of the craft in the legal market. And my friend Ryan said, well, um, try these uh, pre-rolls from Quest. They're really good. He said, as far as pre-rolls go, um, but would you believe they cost 40 bucks for two one-gram joints? First of all, a one-gram joint for me is a big-ass joint, but $40, you're talking about like value... Um, that that's exactly what you're saying, right? Like, I mean, perhaps it's going to be good weed. I'll try it tonight and I'll know. Um, but $40, $20 per joint seems a little bit crazy. My friends who uh, are involved in the legacy market here in the Calgary area, I told them because I knew, I knew I'd get blowback from them, but I just wanted to tell them just to bug them a bit. And they're like, you are nuts, man. Um, at, where, at what point do you think there's going to be an equilibrium for consumers? Because I think, I think the, the bulk of real cannabis consumers are still not really loyal to the legal market, are they? Yeah, I agree. And I mean, I think it's going to take uh, quite some time because what we're seeing is uh, the combination of sort of what has become the the legal market today, Mm -hmm. which is dominated mostly by uh, business people more than cannabis people. And then we see the illicit marketplace that is very much um, dominated by 
uh, people that are focused on the plant and that love the plant but might not necessarily uh, know how to convert that over to a compliant, business-centric environment. Yep. And so what I think is going to happen over time is we're going to see uh, a mix. It'll be a new mix. I, I, I spoke about this a little bit previously. The mix is going to be a lot of the people from this new marketplace that are taking their lumps now with stock prices being a problem and capital markets uh, facing trouble have been learning what it takes to produce quality for the discerning consumer. And people from the other side are gradually learning what it takes to operate under sort of the government paradigm. And we're going to see something where in the old days, in the illicit market, you know, the the duffel bag drop off or the cash only um, environment and economy yeah. or sort of the, the trim parties with a bunch of your friends that might last days and days with pizza and beer. Those <laughs> things are disappearing. And that's part of a culture that existed in the illicit marketplace. But I don't believe that it's really going to carry over when we have more of a normalized marketplace. Mm-hmm. What we have right now is people look at it a lot like there's two sides, like there's legal and illegal. And while there is a legitimate conversation to be had about the differences, there also has to be an understanding that when a big social shift like this occurs, a big policy shift like this occurs, that you know the snapshot that we have right now of the problems is going to be something completely different in three or five years, just like it was even more of a conversation point and more of a more separated a year ago or two years ago yeah. when I went and bought that original thousand dollars of legal weeds. And for me, it was market research, right? Like I, I grow my own. I don't have to pay for my cannabis usually. Yeah. So going to a shop and spending a decent amount of money once is no big sacrifice to find out what's going on. Yeah. But the difference between the quality, even from the worst of the worst, the, the Afrias and stuff like that, mm-hmm. that I bought then, um, has improved at least slightly. Like even the very worst producers have taken steps in the right direction. And it is all about iteration. And so that we're going to see that in the grow rooms, but we're also going to see that in the whole industry. We're going to see more people coming in from all walks of life, from all walks of cannabis history. And we're going to see it turn into something that's new. And it's going to take time. And what comes out of it will be different than probably what we expect. And it'll be different than what anything was before. Yeah. But hopefully we can see the regulations start to reflect what the public wants and what the market wants um, when it comes to things like marketing, when it comes to things like provincial distribution. Yeah. And hopefully we can also see some of these old illicit players that really know what they do well and know how to grow well and know how to um, promote their brands even because they were, they had business success on the illicit market um, also find it easier to come in and find means to come in. And I think we're five or 10 years out from the main market being uh, the legal market 100%. Like I think the illicit market will carry on for a minimum of five years, very robustly, very sophisticatedly. Mm-hmm. There's no way enforcement will shut it down. But I do think that we have to accept that. I think we have to look at that and go, both sides of this divided industry are going to come together to form one eventually. And that's why I chose to step into the legal space and shut down my illicit activities, is because I believe I can be 
at the end of that conversion that I can be there with a cool business, something that's going to be fun and something that I can do for the rest of my life and sustain my family. Yeah, well, therein lies the conundrum, right? And I was speaking about this earlier on a podcast, but uh, with the legal system, we're, we're all proponents and, and big supporters of the idea of legal cannabis. I mean, it should never have been prohibited in the first place. But then we run into this thing where uh, the legal system is complicated um, and it's not convenient for people. It's expensive for people. And, and you know, for me, I mean, yeah, I, I buy expensive cannabis from legal shops because I want to try it. Like you, it's research. Um, but it burns me when I do buy it because I know, I know that I could make one phone call and get weed that's probably just as good uh, for half the price. But I'm trying really hard to support the legal framework. It's got to change yep. and evolve for sure. What do you think about the craft cannabis co-ops that are kind of materializing? I know there's a couple in BC. There's now one in Alberta. Uh, they're, they're sprouting up all over the place. They have some in California. Um, do you think that might be the way in which this will all make better sense for the smaller growers, for maybe the legacy people? Is that kind of the approach we should be taking? Yeah, I mean, I think we, when we look at uh, this as a bit of an egg product, instead of just looking at it as a consumer packaged good, uh, right. we start to see what happens in other agricultural spaces. And that's what a co-op idea is. Yeah. And I think one of the things about it is, like, so we talk about pricing and, and coming to market. And when you have a million square feet of capacity and you're just trying to pump out as much product as you want, yeah. you're happy to sort of leave the the sales and the pricing um to the retailer who takes on that role. Mm -hmm. um, with a lot of the smaller producers, we see, uh, like for one, a lot of the a lot of the smaller growers that want to get into the space are medical growers, and they've been medical patients. I'm not. I don't consider myself a medical guy. I'm. I'm a. I like smoking weed. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but that said, a lot of the uh, foundational decisions that were made in courts and that kind of stuff rely on the medical community, and the medical community sort of been left behind by legalization. These really high prices, mm -hmm. um, they might not affect me. Like I can go in there and I can afford to buy something to try it. Yeah. But if you're uh, uh, like a low income medical patient oh, yeah. or a grow, grow for your own, like there's no opportunity for them to step in there. Yeah. And so what we've seen, like for example, with the raids on the Compassion club in Victoria with UCBC, mm -hmm. um, creating, like I've, the term creative compliance comes to mind, finding a way to bring compassion clubs, finding a way to bring small medical growers into the space so that the product can be available directly to patients or the product can be available at a lower cost yeah. requires coming together on some level for economies of scale for packaging and distribution and quality assurance. And so yeah. we see the example of something like Plocana in the in California, where it's um, a number of growers that come together and own the company that packages and distributes. And so that kind of model is something that I do believe is possible. But one of the things that I think we're facing right now, and this is this stands out in British Columbia, I don't know if it's the same across the rest of the country, yeah. is that because there's no micro licensees or small craft licensees, it's hard to lobby on their behalf because they don't really exist yet. Okay. And so I have a lot of concerns with the BC government's regulations. In fact, as a BC grower for my whole life, my current plan is to avoid selling to the LDB. And the reason for that, there's three or four reasons for that. All right. But one of, one of the big reasons that, that we look at is there's no way to control any pricing. There's no way to control any representation of my brand or product. Mm -hmm. And so when you get these co-ops together or something like when you look at the wine industry with the BQA or with the brewing industry and the yeah. craft brewers build and stuff like that, 
we're not quite there yet because we haven't been licensed. So it, it, we can come together as a group that is former illicit operators and that kind of stuff. But we can't really represent a large group until some of us have gone through the licensing process and can actually say, hey, look, there's there's a number of businesses here that represent this much economic interest that and, and approach the government to try and get changes made then. And yeah. I think this is also reflected by some of the regulatory slowness that we've seen from BC, where they've been slow to roll out Farmgate, for example, because there's no micro-license in D.C., there's not a lot of crafty. They would end up giving the Farmgate licenses to relatively larger producers. And that's not, I don't think, what the B.C. NDP wants to do. Yeah. But it does leave us in sort of this chicken or egg quagmire where there's no easy access to market and there's no brand representation for those that value that. Mm-hmm. And so we end up with a BCLDB store that's full of Ontario again. The irony right there, right? Being in BC of all places. Yeah. God's country. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I guess um, there are probably legacy growers that exist who have probably made a conscious decision also to kind of fly under the radar still. I mean, not everybody's trying to get a license for what they do. Um, so that must therein be a problem as well. But in your case, uh, you are trying to get licensed to get legit. Can you tell me a bit about uh, your business and what you're doing there as far as growing cannabis goes? Yeah, so I'm a living soil cannabis grower. I converted to a, a water-only method um, where I have earthworms in my soil and all that kind of stuff about oh, wow. a decade. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, one of the things that I see throughout both sides of the growing space is uh, this variability and uh, different methods that lead to positive results. And that hasn't been the case necessarily in the legal market. There's a few very common types of like methodology that you use to produce. Mm-hmm. And so one of the challenges for me has been finding a way to bring in uh, the living soil cultivation style. Now, T. God is doing the same. Uh, David Bernard Perron, who's their head grower there, is a very talented guy and a friend of mine. He's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, they are trying to do it at scale. That's I don't really have any interest. Yeah, I, like, I don't have interest in running a, a thousand-person team. I want to do... I want to be the craft brewery of it. You know, I've, I've stayed independent and stayed small because... Yeah. That's what my history is. Like, I've never run a facility over 10,000 square feet. That's huge in, yeah. in the old black market, right? So um, for me, it's about building a small team and building community around it. Uh, we have three plays going on in Victoria right now, Whipple Tree Organic, Captured Light, and a nursery called Nuba Nursery. Mm-hmm. And the long-term goal is to get, you know, probably some processing and farm gate sales, build a lounge on site, and try and create uh, a hub for the, the culture on the South Island while still producing really high-grade, what people would call organic cannabis, even though the word organic is just thrown around today in a way that, you know, I, I try to avoid it. I try to focus more on my methodology. I used to use it a lot more, but it's sort of been watered down now. Yeah. And I focus also on unique cultivars. So, I, you know, I want high terpene cultivars. My holy grail for cannabis effects is I want something that makes me smile. I want something that makes me laugh. Yeah. And so when I select my cannabis cultivars from seed or when I get a clone from somewhere and give it a run in my system, if it comes out and it makes me smile, then it might go into my rotation. And so it's interesting because I select for myself, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it doesn't, it's not going to work for everyone. I know people that need really sedative, like sedative product for medical purposes. Yeah. And most of my stuff doesn't really do that. Um, but I, it, it's a certain character of my brand and it's part of like, I, I do it for me and I do it because I enjoy it and because I love it. And I'd like to be able to represent that. And so our entire play is to be an independent 
small producer uh, in the vein of the the Driftwoods and the Hoynes and the Lighthouse Breweries in in Victoria that have had success there. And luckily, living in Victoria, the government and the community understands that cannabis has been a contributor to the city. They understand that this is part of the culture of the South Island and of BC in general. And so I found that I like I, I got lucky, man. Like I wouldn't be able to do what I've done over the last 20 years if I hadn't been born and lived in BC. I probably wouldn't have the same business plan that I have if I wasn't in Victoria. If I was somewhere else with a less educated cannabis consumer, or if I was somewhere else where the government wasn't as knowledgeable about the, the product and the system, I would be in a different phase. And so our focus is really building a business that, that represents who we are. And my wife and I are excited about this. We, we've got good partners um, that know how to develop a property. And, and we, we just really fell into a good situation in Victoria. I have friends that work at like LPs, huge LPs across the country. Yeah. Um, I have friends that are still in the illicit market. And I don't hold anything against any individual that takes any opportunity to sort of further their goals in their life. But for me, it was really important that I stay independent and try and get through this on my own, um, just for my own motivations. And, and to be able to, once we do get licensed and once we're standing there, hopefully we can create something that's unique and hopefully we can sort of bring some inspiration or some change to the system that has become very, like, I don't want to use the word clinical because the medical system is not very effective, but yeah. I, I want to use the, the like, because the government of Canada has never called it medicine. The, the It's never really been properly acknowledged as medicine by the government. We're yeah. still charging excise on it, right? But it's become a very sort of whitewashed, very sort of corporate-washed uh, image on that side. Even though there's lots of things going on um, that do represent the culture behind the scenes, the average Joe public doesn't see that. And so I want to be able to say that in Victoria, in one of the uh, most canvas-friendly environments in the entire country, probably the entire world, that I can set up a bit of a cultural hub, produce on a small scale with a team of people that really, really care. And, you know, we don't need more than 10 people to run our little our little grow. And it, it's just, I want to be able to bring that kind of a business into the space. Yeah. And then what happens after that, you know, I have lots of other interests too. I have no, I'm not opposed to expanding, going into farm gate sales, which is sort of a pseudo retail, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but our focus has really been on bringing sort of the independent smiley weed cultural side to things and try and make it fun again, try and make it a little goofy while incorporating science and transparency and all these other things. Yeah. Because, you know, people don't smoke weed to read a ledger. They, no. they, they smoke weed to have fun. And yeah. so I would like to see more fun reflected in the cannabis space. I think the concept of smiley weed is, is perfect and it's exactly what I look for. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I, I've I've bought something and thought, eh, you know, it's it's I just didn't like the ride or whatever. And other times you're like, yeah. oh, you got something amazing and you just like, you covet every time, every joint you roll out of it, right? Because you know it's a good batch or it's a good uh, cultivar or whatever. Um, and what you're saying about like the, the small grow and starting a business and supporting yourself, that sort of thing. I mean, the equivalent can be said in, in like Naramada. Yes, you have big, big players who make lots of wine, but you, if you drive around there and you do a little wine touring, there are these little sort of boutique wineries um, that, you know, don't produce as many cases as big players. But I think that the owners and the growers, they, they make a comfortable living, they do well, and they make really good product. And that's part of the appeal to going there for me every year is to, to find who's got what on a particular year and what I like, right? And grab a case of it. And I think uh, if you can get uh, you know a legally uh, licensed small grow operation and, and we can create an environment like that for consumers who appreciate cannabis, I think that's 
only good. It's amazing. Hopefully, we can evolve and have that kind of system in Canada. Like you say, maybe in the next 10 years, but who knows right now? At least you're working yeah. on it. And, and like I make the comparison often to craft breweries that I like. So I'm a bit of a craft beer geek as well. Yeah. So, you know, I used to write about beer. I've made my own beer in my life. And I think a really great example in Vancouver is Brass Neck Brewery. Yeah. And so it was someone who was really passionate about craft beer, but wasn't a brewer himself. He brought in a really good brewer. They sort of cataloged how they built their space. They did a whole blog about, so you want to start a craft brewery. And then they hit the market with fantastic product. Mm-hmm. They've got a tasting lounge. You can go hang out there. It's become a bit of a hub for the craft brew scene. And that kind of thing that relies on multiple levels of regulation. Like in Victoria, we can't have tasting lounge. And so it's uh, like my favorite brewery in Victoria is Driftwood. Mm -hmm. And I can go in and get a growler filled, but they can't have a restaurant lounge built attached to their uh, brewery. Whereas in Vancouver, you can. And so you see, even on a municipal level, simple differences in zoning or on a provincial level, differences in what you're allowed to do attached to a license that does that. Yeah. And, and this is why it's so complex. And this is why like, my goal of getting there has taken a long time. And luckily for me, I've been able to monetize my knowledge and do some consulting and work and that kind of stuff. Yeah. But when it comes down to getting there, you know, our first iteration is just going to be a couple of micros in a nursery and we're not going to have farm gate. We're not going to have a lounge and we have to accept that. We have to become part of the system and make our money and do what we can so that we can push for those extra things. And that might even take five or 10 years before I'm capable of realizing that vision. Yeah. But I, to me, it's worth taking the chance. And I think that there's more people out there that feel the same way, especially if we see a couple of examples of this sort of pop up across the country. Yeah. Um, there's always going to be the big public companies, the big, there's going to be the Budweiser's, there's going to be the Coca-Cola's, there's going to be the McDonald's of Canada. It's going to happen. Mm-hmm. We have to accept that and realize that that portion of regional sales that are not national or multinational is really where, when people talk about the culture, we can bring the best of the culture in, you know, where people connect like they do, like you say at that winery. You go on a winery to tour up there to a small winery that doesn't sell case lots to the LVB. The only time you're going to taste their wine is on site or maybe at a small local wine yeah, merchant. Boot, you're going to go on a tour with a couple other groups and you're going to maybe connect with someone and make a friendship. Yeah. And it's that social aspect that I think is so important to preserve. Yeah, and speaking of uh, weird um, liquor laws in BC, I, I spent uh, you know 20 years living in Vancouver and surrounding areas and had was in a relationship with somebody in the in the industry. And so I'm, I'm loosely familiar with it. And the, the laws there, you could do like a series of podcasts talking about archaic liquor laws in BC. Yeah. You know? <laughs> They're crazy, but we won't go there. Um, so you've always been on my radar. Ever since I heard about you, I started following you on Twitter. Um, you're definitely a, a massive resource and a well-respected person in the Canadian cannabis scene. However, you made a post the other day. Um, it was mm-hmm. pertaining to an article. Uh, there was a few people actually who posted on Twitter about it and gave their uh perspective. And I reached out and said, hey, could I ask you about it? Because I understand what you're saying, but I'm not sure that a person who's not sort of intimately involved in cannabis in one way or another might. Now, this article uh, was about wildflower brands in Vancouver. And it had a quote from, I guess, the CEO or the founder, William McLean. And essentially, he said he's a licensed, legit cannabis operation in Vancouver. And uh, he would like to see a stronger crackdown on unlicensed stores and shops around Vancouver because he doesn't think that it's fair. You were not happy about this, along with many other people on Twitter. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think there's a few big pieces to this that are important to consider. Yeah. I think the first is that Wildflower Brands own City Canada. 
City Cannabis used to be Van City Weeds. Van City Weeds was an illegal dispensary for years and years and years. Okay. So the only reason that City Cannabis even exists is because it was founded on the back of the revenues made in the illegal market by their predecessor brand, which was owned by the same people. Okay. And so for him to come out and say that they should crack down on illegal operators, well, I think if those people cracking down on illegal operators knew some of the things that City Cannabis had done as the previous iteration, maybe they never would have been licensed. So there's a level of hypocrisy there that's hard to swallow when we have uh, the second big issue that is a lack of affordable access to medical patients. Right. And so he comes out after a couple of low price. Uh, yes, illegal operations, but also operations that focus on providing um, cost-effective product to people that use it medicinally. Yeah, um, we're, we're shut down by the CSU or rated by the CSU, the Community Safety. One being Dana Larson's, I think, right over there. in the uh, West yeah. End. Yeah, and. Ted Smith and VCBC yeah. uh, over on Vancouver Island as well. Yeah. So we're talking about, like, I don't know Dana's place very well, but I know VCBC really, really well. And, like, the number of people that they serve in Victoria, they have support from the community, they have support from the council, and they got raided by the CSE. And then this guy who's selling two joints for $69 in the <laughs> store comes out and says, yes, they should do more of this. He is talking about taking action, whether he realizes it or not, taking action against the poorest and uh, the least protected members of the cannabis community. Yeah. Um, while he sells product at a tremendous markup and that's inaccessible, even like I would never buy two joints for that, that amount of money. That's inaccessible even for me. It's, and so it, it, it rings hollow. It rings like a pure profiteering thing where it says, okay, now that I'm legal, even though I used to be illegal, and I know that Wildflower bought City Cannabis after it had a license, um, but this business that I run used to be illegal. Now that it's legal, I want you to shut down all the other illegal shops using enforcement. And then the third big piece is enforcement doesn't work. It never has. Mm -hmm. The reason that we illegalized, I mean, the government have their talking points. The reason that we legalized is a sophisticated, illicit economy developed that they couldn't stop. There was shops opening up all over the place. If they raided them, they opened the next day. No Canadian seemed to care. No one seemed to think this was a big safety risk or health risk. And so the government had to do something to bring it into the legal space because otherwise we would just have this huge illegal economy operating across the country, which would like, I mean, on so many levels that creates a social deterioration of like trust in the enforcement or in the law enforcement world from people that don't understand what's going on. Yeah. Um, the ability to disregard the law for the people that are just disregarding the law and not seeing any consequences. Like there's a bunch of social reasons why the government needs to legalize this. Not the least of which is that who gets arrested and was going to jail for cannabis. Mm -hmm. And this ties back into that second point where it's like, we're talking about the most vulnerable people in society that get arrested. We're talking about the people that are still open today illegally that haven't tried to convert over are the ones that are unwilling to shut down for their patient base. Yeah. And so I just feel like for me, when I hear a retailer say that, I want to make sure that my brand never ends up in the store. I'm only one person. It's not like I'm going to tweet something and it's going to drastically affect the business. Yeah. But for me, that lacks integrity, that lacks uh, any sort of understanding about where most of the industry is at. Yeah. And it feels like this guy is just a suit, a Johnny come lately who does not understand the heritage of the business that he is running yeah. and does not understand the culture of the people that consume this product.
And from my perspective, you know, he's not the only one. He just happened to be the one that was in that news article. Yeah. But we had the Canadian Cannabis Council yeah. that represents a lot of the larger producers come out and make a call for enforcement. And immediately, Aurora and Canopy came out with releases that didn't necessarily walk it back all the way, but they, they were very clear that they don't support it. And so when even Aurora and Canopy don't support enforcement on really any level, for some guy that's gouging people in downtown Vancouver who used to be an illicit store to yeah. call for it, just shows terrible character. And I'll never walk in there again. I'll, anyone that asks me whether they should buy there, I'll say no. And I will do everything I can to make sure that any product I produce never ends up in a city cannabis location because of it. Yeah. And again, I, I'm one person. So how much of an impact does that have? I don't know. But that's my ethical base. And that's my ethical decision to make. And so while it upsets me, like I don't wish harm to anyone. I don't like, there's no actual hate or anything there, right? But it, it's, it's very frustrating for me to see uh, that level of hypocrisy with uh, dollar signs in your eyes. Like it, it, it's incongruent with what the old cannabis community from the illicit space represents. And I hope that it doesn't jive with where we're going. Like yeah. that mixed new space that I'm talking about earlier, you know, five years from now, I hope no one's calling for anyone to get arrested. I don't hear breweries calling for, uh, like, you know, me brewing in my garage to get enforced again. I don't hear tobacco companies talking about people growing kilos of tobacco in their backyard. Yeah. It's going to take time for it to become normal, but this level, this, this request for arrest from someone that comes from, like that runs a formerly black market business. Um, it's just way out of line. Yeah. It, and it just, it, it's ineffective, it's offensive, and it, he should not have said it. You know, it's optics, right? Because if you don't know the background, um, you go, yeah, poor guy, he's paying all these fees for licenses, he's just trying to make a living, and all of these other people don't respect the process and legalization, and, and you think, yeah, maybe that makes sense, until you know the backstory, and then you're like, wow, okay, no, this is very hypocritical, for sure. And I mean, I think I just wanted somebody who probably knows better than I do to kind of clarify, to articulate the actual story, the, the truth of the story, let's be honest. I reached out to William and asked if I could ask him about it, and I haven't heard back. I don't know if I will, but I, get, I guess the only thing I would say in his defense is that if you get quoted in a newspaper article, sometimes um, there's not a value there, there's not an opportunity to, to say your piece, and perhaps if given 30 minutes on a podcast, he might be able to articulate it in a way that you go, mm, maybe. I mean, I'm doubtful of that, but you know how it is when you get a clip. A clip's a clip, and, and they take the clip that yeah. they want to use to enhance their storyline, and, and that's it. Yeah, and I think part of it is, like in a lot of cases, when we deal with people that are calling for enforcement, or we deal with former law enforcement officers, or yeah. something like that, uh, there's an educational component to it, where you know this idea that enforcement will somehow fix something has been disproven over and over and over throughout the history of Canadian illegal cannabis. Oh, yeah. And so... Uh, calling for enforcement solves nothing. And that's where it has to start from. And then not recognizing that the places that just got raided when you make this comment are the places that have should have an exemption made for them that might have uh, you know constitutional protections that apply to them through the series of court cases that started with Parker and ended with Allard, where uh, medical access is a constitutional right and the medical access, I think it's reasonable medical access or reasonable access. Yeah. And I think you can question whether, like, I don't believe city cannabis provides reasonable access. Their prices are outrageous. And the, some of the people that need that medical access the most could never afford it. Yeah, no. And so it's just like, like you say about the optics. It's like that guy might be a totally good family man and he might be a nice guy in the rest of his life. And, you know, but it 
when you come out and say something like that publicly, you better be informed and you better be able to back up what you're saying. And I just, I look at it and I go, okay, people that like that and that think that's a good idea, that that's their prerogative. I'm never going to tell someone they can't have an opinion. Yeah. In my opinion, that's dirty pool. And yeah. in my opinion, that's like, it, it, you know, it's like the people that sell opioids but don't want safe injection sites. So they, like, you, you go down the list of things that, and on a much smaller scale, like I'm not trying to make a direct comparison there, mm-hmm. but you go down the list of sort of weird hypocrisies that exist within drugs. Um, about how we stereotype drug users and people with drug use disorder while at the same time going home and taking a pill for something. Like, I think there needs to be a perspective change on how we handle drug use in general Mm -hmm. and that enforcement and putting people in prison for drug use and that cutting people off from supply, that arresting people that are providing safe supply, these things are a net negative for our society as well. And so when we have this larger conversation about drug reform, having someone who's in the heart of Vancouver running probably the biggest chain of dispensaries in the city come out and say that he wants to see these other people arrested does not do anybody any good service. And it doesn't, like in in the bigger societal context, it will impact the most vulnerable the most. And and that's not what we want to see. I understand the frustration um, when people see someone like, well, like even like Dana's dispensary open and doing really good business. But let's not forget that 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 company also went through the Vancouver process of applying for a license. They got rezoned. They have tried to step into this licit space as best they can. But even once they do, the service they provide is not available legally. And so, you know, I, and Again, I speak mostly from the VCBC side on this, but there are people with drug use disorders, there are people with mental health issues, there are homeless people that shop at the bank, or Victoria Cannabis Buyer Stuff. Mm-hmm. And those people, if they lose the VCBC, will have nowhere to go. Well, two thoughts, um, and, and maybe this sounds like I'm playing devil's advocate a bit for Vancouver, um, but I mean, I think that Vancouver was gentrified, you know, decades ago. I, I rented in Vancouver in my 20s. When it finally, when I finally had enough money to buy something, I moved to New West. Why? Because because I couldn't afford Vancouver. And the only people who live in Vancouver either have owned for a long time or have a lot of money. So uh, from a business perspective, you know, this guy gets a license, opens shops. Um, I mean, people in Vancouver, many of them will probably pay big prices because people in Vancouver, you know, tend to have a lot of money. Maybe that's wrong because it's very mixed. But I, if he's if he's marketing himself to those demographics, the, the same people who have gentrified the city, there are people in Vancouver who will pay big prices for cannabis. Maybe not everyday users, maybe not medical users, but there's a market there. I suppose I, I can't afford those. I know I just paid forty dollars for two joints, but I mean, like I said, I yeah, felt, yeah, right, yeah. I felt terrible doing it, and it just—I didn't even want to tell my wife I did that. <laughs> She'd be like, "What?" The other thing is, I interviewed Ted Smith about this time last year. He actually invited me over to his cabin on the island, and we mm-hmm. sat down. And that guy, like. I fell in love with the guy. Like, he's such a sweetheart. And, you know, his intentions are so pure. And he, you know, told the story of the uh, Victoria Cannabis Buyers Club. And, uh, you know, it hurts me to hear that he's been arrested again or it's been shut down again. Because you're right. That's the kind of place that people need, especially if you depend on cannabis from a medicinal perspective. I mean, that's the service he's providing. And unfortunately, the laws don't protect him right now. You know, or organizations like him or even like Dana with his. It's terrible. It sucks. Yeah, and you know what? The the laws, the legislative laws might not protect them, but there is an element of constitutional precedent through the courts yeah. that has said, like when Judge Phelan said in his 
uh, decision right up that uh, that these dispensaries and these compassion clubs are at the heart of reasonable access for Canadians using cannabis for medical purposes. Yeah, that's a real thing. And as someone like I, I was part of the early group of trees dispensaries on Vancouver Island. Mm -hmm. We at the time were trying to be a recreational dispensary. We recognized that some BCDC in town were doing work with the medical community and people that really use this for a benefit for their health. Yeah. And we didn't want to be that, but it caused us to like face extra issues with the city and the police and stuff because we were different. We weren't protected in that way or like there hadn't been decisions that had said, Hey, these places are actually doing a community service. These are making our community safer. These are helping people maybe do less hard drugs. Yeah, and yeah. what we see now is, I agree with your assessment of the gentrification of Vancouver. I grew up in Vancouver until I was 30, and now I'm 40. And when I go back to see my family and to hang out, I pretty quickly want to come back to the island. Yeah. Um, but when we look at what's going on in the downtown east side and we look at things like the yeah. overdose crisis and how we just generally handle drugs, Mm -hmm. um, obviously the war on drugs has not worked. In fact, it's been a massive negative impact. And when we look at how we handle other drugs, we are, we have people with drug use disorder all over Vancouver that are struggling in every way. Yeah. And for us to look at them and to look at whoever's providing a safe source of any drug, be it legal or illegal, yeah. and to say that we should enforce against the illegal people, we should arrest drug users, we should arrest people that are distributing, it isn't going to work. It's bad social policy. It's also, it dehumanizes the people that we're talking about enforcing against. Yeah. And so from my perspective, it's not just a question of, hey, some guy who ran an illegal dispensary wants people arrested for doing exactly what he used to do. It's also a larger conversation about how we treat these substances in society. Yeah. Because it, when we harp on enforcement and we want enforcement, 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 it's like that harms the people that can't afford a lawyer more than anyone else. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And again, I understand if he feels there's a business down the road that has a competitive advantage because they're illegal and would like to do something about it. But to just come out and say that this early in the process that blanket enforcement is necessary for him yeah. also makes me question how he does business. Because mm -hmm. if you need the police to help shut down your competition because you can't compete, then you're not very good at what you're doing. And so there's an element there too that, you know, well, why can't you outcompete them? And he's going to say regulation. Uh, well, I don't know. You know, these people that are operating illicitly also have to look up over their shoulder for this type of enforcement action all the time and also have to deal with a lot of other issues that are unacknowledged. Yeah. And so there's got to be a little bit of understanding. It can't just be like, arrest that guy. He is competing with me because that, that sounds to me like someone that's, that's incapable of building a thriving business on their own. Yeah. And so, you know, there's, there's other factors in there that are, that are also business side factors. Like get better, get yeah. good. And you won't have to worry about the space down the road if you can outcompete them. Yeah. Um, but really it does come back to me to this, this idea that we should be arresting people for drugs at all. I'm a proponent of legalization of all drugs. I believe that the main issue we have with the overdose crisis is that there isn't a safe supply. And this is something that uh, the government has said, we want cannabis to be safe, we want cannabis to be safe, we want cannabis to be safe. But most of them have recognized, and most of the people I talk to on policy have recognized that this is going to take time. When you try and move a big, lumbering, bureaucratic machine um, and make a change in sort of the way we socially approach a lot of these substances, 
We're going to have outliers. We're going to have differences. We're going to miss the mark on certain things. And I think this guy really missed the mark here where this will probably cost him business more than gain him business. I haven't seen anybody praise him for saying go arrest him. No, but you're going to have those consumers come into his store who uh, aren't really dialed into the cannabis scene, uh, who know no different, uh, who you know drive fancy cars, who have fancy condos, and they're just going to drop... $100 on an eighth and think nothing of it, right? He's going to have that clientele yeah. base. That's where he's located. That's what he's marketing to. So. And like I'm down here in Vegas right now, if you go into Planet 13, they have a $1,000 weed cigar for sale, right? So wow. it's, it's not unusual. I mean, it's like I, I'm, I've eaten at Michelin star restaurants in my life. I've uh, drank fine scotches and wines in my life. And I don't really, I, that's not so much my problem. If he feels he can make a business market selling at exorbitant prices, go ahead. And I I completely agree with the point that we do live in this little cannabis bubble. Like all of us in this industry and all the advocates, everybody in the cannabis media, you know, the average cannabis consumer probably didn't even read that quote or when they did, they didn't even care. They just glossed over it. But the people that consume the most, the people that are involved in the industry, um, those people are going to look at those quotes and they're going to say, Oh, whether it's, hey, why can't you outcompete the illegal people? Are they actually better than you? Or whether it's, hey, you're cutting off a source of medicine for people. Or whether it's, hey, you should never call for enforcement because that's bad policy. Yeah. Everyone in the cannabis space that I've spoken to is like, yeah, of course we don't support that. And that includes Aurora and Canopy, right? <laughs> that includes the biggest producers in the country yeah. that don't support arresting people for this. So I, I think he's sort of out... He's not out on his own. Lots of people have that perspective. But I think the comments that were published were way out of line. Yeah, fair. And I just want to add to your point about um, prohibition of drugs in general. I'm, I'm fully on board with that. I think that there, there has never been any type of blanket prohibition on anything that's, I think, been helpful. I'm including like street drugs like crystal meth and cocaine and heroin. I mean, yeah. the prohibition just leads to larger problems for people who get addicted and have no control over the source and where it's coming from. And, you know, that's, that's the issue. But I mean, you're right. We're, we're years, if not hundreds of years away from the potential of having everything at least, at least standardized and legalized. I'm not saying free markets where, you know, people are driving up from Mexico with, with uh, cars yeah. full of Coke. But I mean, if you have a, a real addiction by definition, but you can get access to a clean source of it, I would believe that your life is going to improve, that you can become a better member within society. And then perhaps you'll wean away from it over time because uh, you're not on the streets breaking into cars and, and involved in crime, trying to source this stuff that on a street level is not even good quality in the first place in many cases. Well, and I think there's two big things there where we look at it and we say, okay, one thing we do is we dehumanize and stigmatize people that use drugs. Yeah. And the other thing we do throughout this whole process is we fail to recognize that prohibition is the cause of most of the harms Mm -hmm. for these people that have drug use disorders and that are facing, like, it it sucks to say it, but we had a problem with opioid use in Vancouver for years and years and years. And it wasn't until there was essentially this big prescription boom um, with OxyContin and the Sackler family and all of that. And middle class white kids started overdosing that it became a crisis, right? Like we still don't talk enough about homeless people and people that don't have access to services. And we we still don't talk enough about how like abstinence programs and cold turkey uh, coming off drugs. Those are bad ideas. Like those ideas create harms. We need to take a harm reduction approach. We need to create a safe supply and we need to recognize people that use drugs 
as just human. Mm-hmm. You know, um, these stereotypes, the idea of a crackhead or a junkie in our jargon. It's like I read an, a, a cool thread the other day about how, well, not cool, like it's, it's a rough situation all around, but about how poly drug use, people that use more than one drug mm-hmm. is actually typical. But we want to classify everyone into meth head or, or junkie or, yeah. you know, stoner. And, and the fact of the matter is that drug use has been part of human culture for as long as humans have been around. Oh, yeah. And that for us to criminalize it, we're creating criminals where we should. We're making people criminals by policy when they are only, they're not harming someone else. And I think the legalization of cannabis and is such a huge positive in the way that it's the first step towards maybe recognizing some of this, that prohibition and the war on drugs produced a lot of the negative results that we associate with drug use disorder. Mm-hmm. If we could just provide a state affordable source of all of these drugs, mm-hmm. then a lot of these people would not be forced into criminality, would not be living on the streets, perhaps. Um, and I think that that's something that people are exploring and people are looking at now. And hopefully the legalization of cannabis in Canada can be a bit of a catalyst for this around the world. Yeah, I might be going out on a bit of a limb here. Uh, maybe it's a bit of hyperbole, but I mean, we lived through the birth of the internet, uh, but we're also now living through um, cannabis legalization and uh, the destigmatization of it, hopefully, you know, in a short amount of time, and maybe more drugs. And I think that in many cases, in many ways for society, access to drugs uh, maybe getting rid of prohibition on various drugs might be as um, relevant to society as, as the internet has been. Do you know what I mean? Um, access yep. to things like psilocybin and, and MDMA and different things. I know we're going off topic here, but uh, over time, should we at least regulate them, make them available to people uh, and use them for medicinal purposes for things that could possibly benefit people, not just harm people? Um, it could change society the same way as the internet. Yeah, and it- And I mean, we see one of the things that's starting to emerge as people do a little bit more research on some of these drugs is that, like, and I've heard toxicologists say this, is the dose makes the poison. Absolutely. And so in a a lot of cases, even in the case of something like crystal methamphetamine, there might be medical uses available at very low doses. Mm -hmm. It might be, like, people are looking at ketamine to treat things. When I was younger, ketamine was one of those drugs that I was like, ugh, I'm not even interested in looking at. Yeah, you'd see it on yeah, exactly. And so, you know, it, it's there's also that level of if, when we stop saying this is just evil, put people in jail, and we start doing research and we start looking at people as humans that use these drugs, yeah. we're going to find that our preconceived notions built around the war on drugs were almost all wrong. Yeah. You know, that this stigmatization of all drug use and this, this idea that, oh, you're allowed to booze up and, you know, get drunk as you want and stumble home. But if you want to smoke a joint or if you want to do any drug, like do a little bit of cocaine, smoke some opium, you know, drop a hit of acid, that you're suddenly some criminal um, has resulted in so many social negatives that, and overlooking potential social positives that, you know, hopefully we see this transition away from there. And I do believe that not just for society as a whole, but for those that are the poorest that are facing a lot of these issues, um, that, you know, a safe supply of opioids and uh, like basically fentanyl free supply of everything mm-hmm. would change the number of deaths that we see, which is many in a day. I, I can't remember the exact number, but it's over a thousand in a year last year of deaths from overdose. And that's with people that have Narcan and with people that are trying to, to stop this. Mm-hmm. A safe supply could cut that down so drastically. And the conversation around it hasn't been as robust as it should. Yeah, 100%. And so 
this is part of the reason that like, you know, I'm a cannabis guy and I do it for a living and cannabis legalization is good for me personally. And I've advocated it for for a long time. So I'm going to participate and I, I really want it to work. But my hope is that this is sort of the, the first shoe to drop, that this is the first step in what we would call the Western world towards um, recognizing that all drug use is not criminal and that by criminalizing drug supply, we're killing people yeah. and that we can start to take a step in the direction that will help rectify some of those problems. Yeah, they say the wrong dose of anything is potentially fatal. Anything. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, so if you're talking street drugs, who knows? Like you say, there could be some medical benefits in a variety of different things. Um, if it's researched well, if it's administered properly, carefully, at the right dose, um, I guess hopefully we'll find out. Um, you're in Vegas and uh, yes. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that, but I've had you on for almost an hour already, <laughs> which for for me is a long interview. So thank you. Um, you want to give me? Yeah, I, I like the sound of my own voice. <laughs> you want to give me your two cents on what's happening down there this year, from your perspective? Yeah. So I, I mean, I haven't spent a lot of time on the floor yet. I'm heading there this afternoon to sort of do the full walkthrough. Um, for me, as a grower and someone that's building my own business, I don't find that the trade show offers me a lot personally. Um, okay. A lot of the companies that are technical in nature, the lighting companies, the HVAC companies, that kind of stuff, I can just call them up and talk to them about buying their product without needing to come to a trade show. Right. But what it is about is it's about the networking, it's about the people, it's about coming here and seeing uh, a wide swath of the cannabis industry in one place. Um, you know, like it, like you could say, everything from the suits to the hippies are here, right? Yeah. yeah. And so... That part of it, and because it's Vegas and everybody likes to have a good time in Vegas, uh, makes it a really fun event. And it is definitely the sort of preeminent trade show in the cannabis space. So there's definitely more going on here than there is at any of our Canadian shows, for example. Okay. Um, but I'm also going over to the Emerald Cup tomorrow. So we're going over to the, the California old school sort of illicit cannabis cup that is now legal. Mm-hmm. And so it's going to be an interesting comparison. Here, this is a business-to-business conference, people doing deals, people looking for money, people looking for strategic partnerships. Yeah. And then over there, it's much about much more about celebrating the business-to-consumer side of it. And so this trip in general is going to be quite interesting because we're going to come to Vegas, have some fun, spend some time looking at the floor. And the floor is huge. Like This yeah. trade show is gigantic. Um, and people don't realize because, you know, lots of trade shows are pretty big, but this floor and the number of displays here, there's nothing else in cannabis that I've seen that really compares. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot of fun. It's also business to business side where everybody's making deals and into the business side. And then go over there and then just smoke with a bunch of people that want to celebrate the plant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it's a cool contrast. And, you know, it's a fun trip to make. Vegas is always fun for me. I used to play poker a lot. And, um, you know, I, I enjoy my time here. Yeah. Um, but it is it is a very corporate event as well. So the contrast is nice that we get out of here and go have a big smoke out in California <laughs> afterwards. Yeah, fair. Um, for those who don't know you as well as many, uh, how do they find you online? So online, uh, I'm the executive director and contribute to Inside the Jar at insidethejar.com. Mm-hmm. I'm on social media at Bearded Greenly is my handle. Um, I'm most active on Twitter. I'm not much of a photographer, but I am on Instagram. Um, and yeah, other than that, it's mostly company websites and stuff and all of that's coming. We're going to see Whipple Tree Organics 
and capture mic come online as my micros in the next couple of months. So oh, keep an eye out for that as well. Well, um, thanks for doing this, man. I know you're in Vegas, so sitting on the phone with me is probably not the top of your priority list, but uh, you're kind enough to talk to me uh, about the article and in your perspectives on cannabis and the legal system and the legacy system. I would love to have you back on because I think we could talk about a whole lot more. So perhaps in the next few months, I'll reach out again, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely, man. And I appreciate you taking the time as well. Thanks for the call. And, and let's chat. Uh, reach out anytime. Thanks, brother. Take care. Have fun today. And tomorrow. All right, cheers. I will for sure. All right, bye-bye. Thanks so much to Travis for joining me for an amazing talk, especially since he was down in Vegas for MJ Biz Con. To find out more about Travis or follow him on Twitter, he's at Bearded Greenly, or his new media company can be found at InsideTheJar.com. All right, between now and the new year, I have an interview with Miss Universe Canada to talk about her cannabis-inspired gown and a chat with none other than Jody Emery. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to the Cannabis Update Podcast. We do our very best to be as accurate as possible, but take no responsibility for inaccurate details or facts. If something interests you, we're glad to have brought it to your attention, but please take the time to research the details for yourself. 